Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered, the, entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people and the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of, he of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them only so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Okay, just flick over a few pages to page um, 1200. Uh, and the second reading is going to be from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1 through to verse 12, so just a few pages over on page 1200. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your, so that, um, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, is, perishes even though refined by fire, 
may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophet, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Evening folks, welcome to One Peter. I'm Roger. And uh, we start tonight looking, as Andrew said earlier, eight weeks through this great letter. Um, it's kind of my happy place as a Christian. Uh, on one hand, there was evidence against it in that it was part of One Peter that was the school Bible reading. Every time we had chapel at school, we got cranked out this bit of two, 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's kind of ingrained like a fired poker seared into my head. <clears throat> Not necessarily in a good way. But also the first time I ever gave a series of talks when I was 19 on a camp uh, it was from 1 Peter and I became very acutely aware of my inability to do that well um, and the greatness of the message that God entrusts to people. So I'm going to start tonight by asking you to just reflect on your hopes for a minute. I'm actually going to pause in a moment and let you consider what your hopes are at the moment. How will you know what your hopes are? Well, what do you think you're going to do this week? What do you hope will have happened by the end of the week? You might be hoping that you get paid. You might be hoping that you get a job. You might be hoping that you find that special someone. Or you might be hoping for something much longer awaited. Uh, you, we all have quite simple hopes on one level. I hope that tomorrow it's sunny so I can ride my bike around because that just makes my day better. Um, but also I have hopes for my three kids and those hopes span over decades. I hope that they will outlive me and kind of look after me when I'm old and crazy. Ugh. You'd be able to tell what your hopes are by the way that you expend your energy, the things that kind of tell you whether you're satisfied or not. What are you working towards at the moment? What will make you content? These are your hopes. How do you define yourself? I'm a person who's yeah, studying this, working here, doing this, playing this. Competing here, looking for this, working towards. Just going to actually give you a moment where I'm not going to speak for about 30 seconds, and I just want you to consider your hopes.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word tonight, that you would guide us by your spirit. That you would show us again the depth of your love for us. That you would show us what you've done for the people you've chosen. Uh, We pray that you might help us to see you and your son, the Lord Jesus, at the centre of the universe. And we pray for one another that you would be at work in us by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure what you're thinking about your hopes. Peter, who wrote this, and that's your cue to look down at your Bible, page 1200, if it's one of the church ones, or just there on your phone, if that's what you're looking at. Um, Peter wrote this letter. Peter knows what it is to have hopes and to have them dashed. Peter was, as he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sounds great, doesn't it? But for a couple of days there, things were looking pretty grim for Peter. The leader of the apostles, we've just worked our way in our previous sermons through Mark's gospel, and Mark, like Matthew and Luke and John, tell the story of Jesus, God's promised king, the Messiah, who gathered a group of men about himself, the disciples. They were with Jesus in the three years he was active around Galilee and working towards Jerusalem. They were there when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Judas. But Peter himself, on the night that Judas betrayed Jesus, also did what Jesus said he would and said, I don't even know you, Jesus. Three times before the rooster crowed, Peter denied he had anything to do with Jesus, the one on whom he'd set his hopes. See, Peter was a fisherman, and Jesus had called him to drop the nets, to leave his father's business, and to follow him. Peter had done it. Peter had followed Jesus. He'd set his hopes on Jesus. And on that night, And I think Luke paints it best. The Gospel of Luke paints it best because there's this moment when just as the rooster crows, Peter looks through a doorway to where Jesus is inside with the Roman guards and Jesus looks Peter in the eye. And Peter realises what he's done. He's betrayed his teacher. He's betrayed his king. He's betrayed his Lord. He's betrayed his hope. Peter knows what it is to feel as though the thing around which you've centred your life is dead. The thing around which you've centred your life is stupid, moronic, publicly humiliating. Peter followed Jesus and Jesus was crucified. Peter's hopes were dashed. And so Peter, of all people, knows how good it is to have a hope that is certain, evidentiary, that is grounded in historical reality that can be seen, touched and witnessed and recorded. Peter knows how good it is to have a hope that is not just a short-term hope, but a hope that spans into eternity. And I just want to say, as we crack into 
1 Peter 1, 1 to 12 tonight, I'm going to get a little bit excited at times. Because this is very good news, because the same hope that Peter experienced when he met the risen Jesus, the Jesus who got up from being dead and in a cave, the Jesus who rose from the dead is the one in whom Peter put his hope. And if you're a Christian, that's the same Jesus in whom you have placed your hope. All your other hopes fall under the banner, under the great heading of, my hope is in Jesus. It's not to say the other hopes aren't real. They sure are. But for us who are God's people, our hope is primarily, our identity is primarily found in our hope in Jesus. And you know what's good about it? It's a fantastic and certain hope. Let's read about it. 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. God's elect. Let's talk about God choosing people. When you're in fourth grade playing handball in the playground, it was good to be chosen. Maybe because you were friends with the person who was the captain. Maybe because you had excellent handball skills. That's not what this is like. God chooses people because he can, because he's sovereign. And God chooses people because he loves people that he's made. He does not choose us or anyone based on what we're like, whether you're more attractive, more obedient, better dressed, English speaking. God chooses people just because he can. And when you become God's elect, and that's how people are described there in verse 1, to God's elect... You become strangers in the world. Do you see that there in verse 1? To God's elect. This is the Christians. You are, if you're a Christian or if you're investigating Christianity. Hi, we're glad you're with us. What you're thinking about committing to, if you put your faith in Jesus, is to become a stranger in the world. Maybe not the best marketing policy anyway, but it's true. You become a stranger in the world because your primary identity is the one who, with one who has been raised from the dead, Jesus. Now, these people that Peter writes to, I'm still in verse 1, don't worry, it gets faster. These people that Peter writes to are scattered everywhere. Imagine getting a handful of stones and just going like this. Chucking them into a pond and they're kind of scattered all around the place. All these towns that are mentioned are in what we call today Turkey. Ask Roger Bray. He's just been to all of them, or at least most of them. (coughs) The most likely theory is these are people who at one time, them or their ancestors, have lived in Jerusalem as Christians or Jews, and because of the Roman persecution have been chucked out and have moved to towns around these places. They're Christians, God's elect, strangers in the world. Not just because they may not have spoken the language or the local dialect. You know what it's like when you go somewhere and as soon as you open your mouth, you know and they know that you don't fit in. Strangers in the world. On one level, it's as easy as language. When uh, Leah and I went to the States in 2001, I tried to order a coffee and a donut from Dunkin' Donuts. I thought, let's keep it simple, Rog. You don't have the American accent down. Can I have a white coffee and a donut? And the guy's like, what? I couldn't make myself... It was so embarrassing. 
I felt like an idiot. I knew that I didn't, he knew that I didn't belong. He's like, yeah, and I'm not even going to pretend to do an American accent. What part of, what part of Australia are you from? Like he knew straight away I was a stranger. When you're chosen by God, your primary identity is no longer where you come from here, but where you belong. Verse 2, these people have been chosen, and this is just one of those moments where the Bible college guys get really excited, because in verse 2, it's the Trinity. You don't see the word Trinity, but look who's in verse 2 doing the work. Who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. God's elect, chosen by the Father, sanctified through the Spirit, for obedience and forgiveness through the Son. Just like that Hebrews reading that Ben read us, sprinkling by Jesus' blood means being forgiven by him. The idea is that Jesus died the death that you and I rightly deserve to take. If you picture God's wrath, his rightful anger against sin as a consuming fire that burns against sin, and we've all turned away from God in various ways, naturally and by decision, we rightfully stand as objects of God's wrath. That fire which is destined for us has burned in Jesus. And so we are left free to relate to God as Jesus rightfully does, as sons and heirs. God's elect, chosen through the foreknowledge of the Father, through the sanctifying, making separate. Sanctifying means making, setting aside for a good purpose. The sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and forgiveness through his blood. That's you, by the way, if you're a Christian. The purpose of your life is for obedience to Jesus and being forgiven. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't do one, have one without the other. When you're a Christian, you start obeying Jesus. You start obeying Jesus because he's forgiven you. You realise that you can't obey him perfectly, but that's okay because you're forgiven. Your hopes, if you are one of God's elect, are bound up in Jesus, in what God has done through the Spirit. And these two little words, which are easy to skip over at the end of verse 2 there, kind of summarise the Christian life beautifully. Stop and think about this. Grace and peace. Grace, the idea of getting something when you deserved nothing. And peace. Proper peace, which doesn't really come naturally. You walk into a new environment, a new church, a new office, a new thing of people, and pretty much within about three-fifths of five-eighths of not very long, there's friction. But from the gospel... From the Father, the Son, and the Spirit comes grace and peace. Not just a little bit of grace and peace, but grace and peace in abundance. Peace with God. Peace with our brothers and sisters who know what it is to receive this gift from God. <clears throat> this is who this letter is addressed to. God's elect. If it's you... Peter has something to say to you. If you're not a Christian yet, get on board. This is good news. Getting something for free when you deserved quite the opposite. This is good news. 
The rest of the passage from, that we're looking at tonight from verse 3 to verse 12 falls out into a couple of kind of obvious categories. Three, verse 3 through 9 is about what God has done. And verses 10 to 12 are a kind of retrospective on how good we have it now. How good we have it now. We're going to spend most of our time on verses 3 to 10 just looking at what God has done and what it's like for us now. But I'm just going to take a step back from the microphone as I read the start of verse 3. Are you ready? Praise be to God! This is great news. The reason we sing in church, the reason sometimes Christians are annoyingly happy despite their circumstances is because of the great, great, great thing that God has done in Jesus. Not that the whole Christian life is happy, happy, joy, joy, but God has done a beautiful and fantastic and permanent thing in Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth. Now, I preached this sermon this morning down at Erskineville. And when you come to church at Erskineville, and you should come sometime, it's kooky and great. Uh, in the first half of the service before morning tea, there's about 30 kids in church, most of them under two years of age. It's chaos. It's bedlam. It's, there's crying, there's gurgling, sometimes there's vomiting. It just I'm not really selling it to you, am I? New birth is a weird little image, but we're just going to dwell on it for a moment because it's really important in this passage. Because in God's great mercy, if you are a Christian, you have been given new birth into two things, a living hope and an inheritance. A living hope and an inheritance. But it's the new birth idea that really works here. See, when Jesus came back to life, it was a new life. And anyone who rides on Jesus' coattails by faith, anyone who trusts in him, anyone who's chosen by God to obey him and be forgiven by him, anyone who's a Christian gets new birth. Now, I hesitate for a moment here because of our American brothers. Anyone from America? Hi, Casey. Um, The phrase born-again Christians has had a little bit of bad press, right? It's kind of a simile for kooky, crazy people. But anyone who's a Christian has been born anew, born afresh. The idea of turning to God and receiving this gift of his in Jesus is like becoming a baby. Not as it's described in John 3, kind of crawling back up inside your mum because that's just weird on every level, but it's a fresh start. Have you seen a newborn? If you haven't, talk to Claire. She's a midwife. She's very good at it. She has lots of great stories, as long as you have a high tolerance for kind of ickiness. I have three kids. I was there for their births. It's astonishing, new birth. A person, a real, live, real person who's so tiny that you can't imagine that all the bits could fit inside just kind of arrives, especially for dads, because we have no experience of pregnancy. Um, new birth is just astonishing. And this, this human arrives and 
It's a person. It's a, it's a new life. It's a life full of potential and hopes and possibilities. It's a fresh start. That person hasn't done anything right or wrong. A new birth is a beautiful picture of what it's like to be chosen by God and given new life. Whatever has passed, whatever you've done before, the way you've treated people and things and God, when you turn to Jesus in faith, it doesn't exist. You've got new birth. A new life. And it's not just any new life because any life that is born is born into a family. And that's the idea that Peter picks up here. Born into a family. See the way it's described there in verse 3. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first of two things. You, as a Christian, you're born into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. What does that mean? Oh, it means that you have eternal life given to you because the one you follow has begun eternal life. If you were there on that first Sunday, you would have seen the risen Jesus. Now, it kills me that I didn't see it. I wish I had. But Jesus has defeated death. And so those who hope in him, those who follow him, those who trust him, we have eternal life ahead of us. It's... It's a living hope. All the hopes that uh, we pondered at the beginning of this talk, they're kind of subtly treated as dead hopes here. Hopes that will perish and spoil and fade. Hopes that aren't eternal. It's a subtle critique, the resurrection, of earthly Temporally bound hopes. That whatever we put our hope in, in fame, in fortune, in a bucket list, in YOLO, you only live once. Hmm, resurrection disproves that. Whatever we put our hopes in, the resurrection shows to be shallow. Not worthless entirely, because there are things on earth worth doing. But just cut short, undersold by the magnificence of eternity. Praise be to God because in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. It's alive now, just like Jesus is alive now. And it continues into eternity. Not only into a living hope, but into, second thing, verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, I don't know about your family. I'm guessing you think they're a bit weird. Good odds they are, because they're people. I could tell you all sorts of things about my family. Very odd. No TV during the week when I was growing up. Just on the weekends. Weird family. I've got this big cultural gap. I mean, I loved Thunderbirds, Saturday mornings, 6am. It was the first time I could watch TV. Uh, and I've inherited all sorts of baggage from my family. I don't know about you. What's your family like? We can talk about that afterwards. Or not. 
Uh, maybe when my parents die, I'll get some good stuff. They have quite a nice house. I have only one brother, not five or six, so you know the odds are better there. I might get my mum's golf clubs. <laughs> I don't know what your family is like, but whatever, whatever the future holds, you have all sorts of inheritance from them. Earthly, temporal, physical inheritance. You were born into that family. But for those whose faith is in Jesus, for those who turn to God for obedience and sprinkling by Jesus' blood, God gives new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Markets crash, houses get festy, inflation happens. But the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, how's it described? Verse 5. It'll never perish, spoil or fade. It's pristine. Uh, This is something worth getting born into. Not that you can do anything to achieve it, just Jesus has already done it for you. An inheritance that is being part of God's own family. Whatever your father and mother are, were like, God is perfect as a father. Part of the inheritance that's kept in heaven for us as his children is the prospect of eternal, perfect relationship with a father who knows what's good for us and gives it to us graciously. Starting now. How do you feel about that? Verse 6. Rejoice. Rejoice. If you're a Christian, just pause for a moment and just reflect on how good you've got it. You've been given a new life. A new life where it stretches into eternity, death's defeated, which you can't do by yourself, where you've got an inheritance that's eternal, something you can't achieve for yourself. It's good news. It's great. You greatly rejoice, you people. Part of my job is to sell you this picture of how good it is to be shown mercy, how good it is to be treated as children of the Most High God. It starts now and it heads into eternity. Even now, as verse 5 describes, you're kept shielded until that time when it appears. Verse 5 says, Kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. You kind of have to say it in all one breath. The idea is that there's something set apart for you because you you don't get your inheritance right now. But until then, God, because in case you haven't noticed so far, God is the subject here. This passage is all about what God is doing, not what we get, although those are nice side effects. This is what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. And at the moment, before Jesus returns and ushers in that new creation, God is doing what verse 5 describes, shielding by faith those who have been born anew because babies need Protection. 
Not that many nude babies rolling around. Their parents shield them in all sorts of ways. And so it is with you and me. God shields us by faith. Notice that when shielded by faith, it doesn't mean that I have to get up my own kind of strength and faith points to shield myself from all the things that the world will throw at me. No, being shielded by faith is something that God does for me because it's his strength, his protection of me that is by faith. It's about what God is doing. And so it's appropriate, verse 6, for us to greatly rejoice. What God has done folds into what God is doing now. What's the, what's the status quo? What's life like for you? Verse 6 spells it out, I suspect. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You know, sometimes the Bible just understates things. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I reckon there's three kind of categories that blur into each other here of what it means to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Firstly, we live in a busted, broken world and bad stuff just happens. Someone runs into your car. You get elbowed in the face while you're playing netball. Serves you right for playing netball. Easy. The first kind of trial... The first kind of trial is just that stuff happens in the world. Things are going to go wrong. Second kind of trial is that you live as a Christian and so you just kind of, you stand out a little bit from the people around you and there's a bit of background bad radiation, like, uh, you're a bit of an idiot. Why would you bother standing out for what's right there? Everyone knows it's not worth it. And the third kind of trial, I reckon, is abject persecution, where you're put in jail for being a Christian where your property is confiscated, like our brothers in China and Pakistan are experiencing. Stuff just goes wrong. You get a bit of negative feedback on being a Christian and you're actually persecuted. Grief in all kinds of trials. Each of those three, there's proper grief. Like there's really bad things that just happen in this world for no apparent reason apart from the fact that the world's kind of broken and yearning to be set right. Romans 8. It's really bad when people treat you like you're a moron just because you've put your faith in Jesus. It's real, it's a proper trial. It's not the same as being thrown in jail, which is also really bad, or having your relatives executed simply because they stood up for Jesus. But it's bad. Grief in all kinds of trials. These things will happen. What's your response? Well, you're going to ask why. Why, Lord? Why, if you are good, if you're merciful, if you're kind, if you've already sent your son to conquer sin and death, why is this happening? Verse 7. These have come so that your faith, and just skip over the stuff in the, between the dashes for now. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Why do you go through trials? Why does God put grief in your life and mine? So that our faith will be proved genuine. Not that we'll be proved fantastic, but so that God will be shown to be faithful. It's about God, not about me. God is faithful when you are trialled and tested and put through grief. 
you think to yourself, how can God possibly be good here? What possible good could be happening through this? And I have to say, I've only been alive for 38 years and conscious for less of of them than that. My life's been pretty good most of the time. There's been some times when stuff has happened that's made me think, I don't know if it's worth keeping on trusting God. At that time, I couldn't work out what God is doing in this trial. Couldn't work it out. Three, four, five years down the track, I can look back and say, I can see that I had expectations of God and he was kind of teaching me that I deserved nothing and that everything I got from him was a gracious gift. But at the time of trial, I had no idea what God was teaching me. I think that's often the case. You've got people, friends around you who are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. Don't try and tell them straight away what God is doing. Just sit with them and tell them that God is faithful. These trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. That is, that God will be proved trustworthy. And that praise, glory and honour will come, not to you or me, but to God when Christ is revealed. That's what verse 7, have a look at verse 7. Your faith may be proved genuine and may be result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Capture the vision. See the Christian life. These people that God has chosen, given them new birth into a, a living hope, into an inheritance. And in the meantime, even though life is besmirched with trials and grief of all kind, these people endure trusting God. He is the one on the last day that will be shown to be great because he shielded us from all these things, that he's kept us by his power, not our own. Your faith is better than gold because gold, good as it is, for all sorts of things, I can tell you about them, science degree, love it, it's really pure, you can make really thin cables out of it and it's a really good conductor. Even gold perishes. But your faith won't perish because your faith is in God who is imperishable. This little section ends up with verses 8 and 9, which does one of those things that Scripture does sometimes and puts words in your mouth to express, kind of, something that you think or feel in a way that you might not have been able to do it unless the Bible had done that for you. This is Peter's attempt at expressing what it is to have the Spirit of God in you, to be born anew and to live with these great, inheritance and great new life. Verse 8, though you haven't seen Jesus, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're getting what was promised, the salvation of your soul. I spent some time this week trying to think of analogies for this. A little story I could tell you to help you understand what it means to have an inexpressible and glorious joy, but I can't, which is kind of the point. Sometimes it's just so good to be a Christian that you just... Why would God choose you? Why would God choose me? I can't... It's so good to have a hope that cannot be shaken. That no matter what happens to me, God is faithful. When I'm faithless, 
He's trustworthy. I can't express how good that is. We're getting what we've been promised. Sin forgiven, relationships restored, a relationship with the creator God who loves us, despite us. Just have a look back up at verse 3. What's the point of all of this? That we should recognise it and praise God for what he's done. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done this great thing in the past through Jesus, presently through grief in all kinds of trials, knowing that the future is certain because of what's already happened through Jesus. Verses 10 to 12 kind of fold this thing with a bit of a retrospective just says that this whole bit of the Bible from Matthew 1 backwards, from Genesis to Malachi, all the prophets who spoke, all this, it's quite a lot really. Everyone who wrote down in here wished they knew what you knew, what you know about Jesus. They had shadows of what God was doing, snapshots of how God would be gracious, how justice and mercy could coexist in one thing. But no one saw it until Jesus, until the suffering and glory that came through Jesus. They wished they could see it. You've got more insight into what God is doing than Isaiah and Jeremiah. The same spirit that had them write down God's very own words, is in you, sanctifying you for forgiveness and obedience to Jesus. They wished they knew what you knew. The point? It's good to know what God has done in Jesus. It's good to have had mercy shown to you in Christ. Even the angels, now, they didn't really need forgiveness, so they're kind of looking at you going, oh, it's pretty good to be forgiven. Even angels, as long as to look in these things. Where do we go from here? Well, we go into the rest of 1 Peter, which teaches you how to live as a person who's a stranger in the world, whose inheritance is eternal. It teaches you how to live as a person who's living, as someone who's been set apart by God. This is a great book. This is a great time for us to recapture who we are, to see the big hopes and not be sold short on kind of dodgy short-term hopes. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're about to eat and drink in remembrance of what God has done. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who are shielded by God's power until Jesus returns. This is very good news. Heavenly Father, we ask that that you would help us to see your great work through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that now that as we reflect on the great cost of your mercy to us, that you would Fill our hearts with praise. We pray that you would help us to see the grief and trials of life for what they are. 
as part of your sovereign plan that your faithfulness might be shown for what it is. How we thank you, Lord, for your great, great mercy. We thank you for your good fatherliness toward us and we pray that the Spirit who has begun a good work in us might continue to do that until the day we see you face to face. Amen.